Hey everybody, this is Steve Thomas, and I am so grateful that you have decided to log on to Budge today, especially after we've taken a four-month hiatus. So if you've noticed on the Budge lineup, there has not been an episode dropped in the last four months. That is intentional. We actually took some time off, but we're back now, and we're back with some new ideas and some new content, and our plan is to go every month through this year just trying to give you stuff that will help you move just a little bit in every area of your life and especially your leadership. I think most of you probably know, maybe some of you don't, that Budge is actually a Zoomcast that we do once a month that people all over the country log on and we talk 45 minutes about leadership, just like you're listening to right now, except we do it live. If you're interested in being a part of that Zoomcast, please feel free to do so. You can go to my website, stevejthomas.com, go to the Budge page, and the link to get registered for that Zoomcast will be on that page. would love to have you log on. Pretty much it's the same content. Every now and then we add things to the podcast that we don't do the Zoomcast, and occasionally we talk about things on the Zoomcast that we don't include on the podcast. So if you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. That would be awesome. Just go to the website. You can get logged in by registering for Budge. This month, we're going to be talking about something that, quite honestly, I hope sticks with you for a long time. I also hope that you're able to take this information and use it in your organization, create conversations with people in your organization, and then actually take some of the things we're going to be sharing with you later on in the content about what you can do and put into action. And I, I, I really hope that all of you continue this conversation and continue this thought process with the people around you, because I think this is a very cool topic. I think it's very uh, timely. And I think it's very needed in our organizations. This month, we're talking about the second job, just in case you didn't happen to notice the title. The second job. Now, I did. A, I had some fun with this. So when I came up with the idea of this particular podcast, I thought, okay, the second job, what are some funky second jobs that are out there that people may not know about? And just so happens I have 10 of them. I'm going to share with you real quick. You probably don't even know that these things exist, but they really do. So these are actual second jobs. And I guess really, you know, depending on how desperate you are, these could be first jobs or only jobs or whatever. So, but these are second jobs that I actually came across. A professional cuddler. Sounds interesting. A golf ball diver. An online dating ghostwriter. In other words, you're writing dating profiles for someone else a professional bridesmaid, a paper towel sniffer, a face feeler. Face feelers are also known as sensory scientists, which sounds a whole lot better than face feeler. What they do is they feel the difference in somebody's face before and after they've used lotions, creams, and other products. Kind of interesting. A line stander, a pet food taster, a pet food taster. Good luck with that one. A worm picker. People need worms, man. A worm picker. And then the last one here is a gross stunt tester. Now, you probably 
are very well aware that that is not at all the second job that I'm talking about in this particular podcast. The second job we're talking about is something way beyond that, something way deeper than that, and something I think is way, way, way more serious than that. The second job. This idea came to me when I read a book called An Everyone Culture, and I opened it up to start reading, and this was the opening paragraph of the introduction to this book. Listen to this as I read you this opening paragraph. In an ordinary organization, most people are doing a second job no one is paying them for. In businesses large and small, in government agencies, schools, hospitals, for-profits, not-for-profits, in any country in the world, most people are spending their time and energy covering up their weaknesses, managing other people's impressions of them, showing themselves to their best advantage. They're playing politics. They're hiding their inadequacies. They're hiding their uncertainties. They're hiding their limitations. They're simply hiding. Is there anything more valuable to a company than the way its people spend their energies? I'm pretty sure that the authors of this book Uh, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy nailed it. And I have to agree with them. I think this is exactly what's going on in a lot of organizations around the world. So that prompts some questions for me. Why is this going on? What can we do about this? And then the question is, why is this a big deal? To me, this becomes a big deal because people are spending most of their waking hours at work, just like you do. And if they're doing these things at work, they are not in any shape, form, or fashion being or becoming the best version of themselves. They're not living meaningful lives. And if they're actually spending their energy doing those things, then they are spending less energy doing the things that we actually brought them on our team to do. Therefore, the whole organization suffers because these things are going on. What are they actually doing? They're protecting themselves. Why are they protecting themselves? What do people do when they protect themselves? Well, most people in self-protection is when they lie, they blame, they don't admit mistakes, they don't ask for help. Why would they? Because they're trying to protect themselves. They don't want to look stupid, so they don't ask for help. They don't want to look stupid, so they don't ask questions. They don't want to infringe on anybody or anybody's ideas or anybody's privacy, so they don't call anybody out. They don't bring to attention anything that needs to be changed or needs to be fixed. They walk on eggshells, man. They avoid conflict. They won't ask questions. They'll act like they know what to do when they really don't know what to do because, again, they don't want to look stupid. They spend a lot of time proving themselves, spend a lot of time doing things and saying things just to simply fit in, belong, and prove that they actually are worthy of being there or are worthy of belonging and inclusion. The main thing for me is, That when they show up to work, they're putting on their work self and they're not being their true self. And I I don't know if you've ever been in a position like that, but I'm telling you, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. You're constantly questioning yourself. You're constantly wondering if you should even be at this organization in the first place. Um, You're asking yourself, uh, do you even matter? Does your work matter? And you're spending a lot of time, effort, and energy 
going over those things instead of just being the best you that you can be. That's why this is a big deal. Google did a study about 10 years ago at Google to see what it was that made teams effective in their organization. They called it Project Aristotle. Here's a quote from the findings of that research. What Project Aristotle has taught people within Google is that no one wants to put on a work face when they get to the office. No one wants to leave part of their personality and inner life at home. But to be fully present at work and to feel psychologically safe, we have got to know that we can be free enough to share the things that scare us without fear of recriminations. We must be able to talk about what is messy or sad and to have hard conversations with colleagues who are driving us crazy. Let me take this a step further. I deal with organizations a lot that the leader or one of the team members have a difficult time saying anything to anybody who's not really doing what it is they need to be doing or that could improve in an area uh, or that maybe are just maybe they're unaware of how they could be better. And so these leaders and these team members that I'm working with, the, the number one question I, I ask is, have you talked to them about it? And the number one answer is no. And there are several reasons for that. Three of the main reasons is they don't know how to have that conversation. The other reason is they hate conflict, so they will avoid conflict. And I, I totally understand that because I hate conflict as well. But the other reason is just it, it's, it, it, it's, not, it's not safe. And the culture is not set up in such a way that that is a common thing. Therefore, all these things, people working the second job, that happens. And that's what takes place. And that, to me, is what breaks our culture down. That is not a healthy, full, meaningful, or safe culture. Now, part of this for me is, and some of you have heard me talk about this, some of this for me is how we fundamentally see work. I think we have a lot of people in our organizations that see work as this evil necessity that I have to go do every single day. It is a separate part of the rest of life. We even have a phrase for it called work-life balance. And we see work as something that is not life, but something in addition to or separate than life. So therefore, a lot of this stuff wouldn't even make sense because this is work after all. So shouldn't work be that way? Or why does it matter if this is just work and all those kinds of things? To me, that's a breakdown in the whole system. And uh, I don't want to get into that right now. Maybe we'll do something on that later on. We'll do an episode on that. But I think that is one of the key things. I think we got to do a better job at re-educating people on how we fundamentally see work and how we could or should see work to make work and to make culture more meaningful, more full, and more safe. So how do we create that? What do we do from here? And this is where we're going to join the Zoomcast with the conversation already in progress. Hope you enjoy. So what do we do about this? Well, the overarching big answer is we create safety. 
that as leaders and as people working with other people, team, you know, team members, team players, uh, not just formal leaders, but anybody working in organizations, I think we have to get back to this creating safety and, 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 and really creating this psychological and emotional safety that needs to exist, not just at work, but in every other part of our culture. It needs to happen in our schools. Uh, it needs to happen in our churches. It needs to happen in every place that people gather to try to do something cool and bigger than they could do by themselves. And if, if that safety doesn't exist, then we're going to continue to have people that come every single day working that second job. So the big overarching answer is you create safety. But I'm not comfortable with just giving you that answer and moving on. So here are six things that I believe that we can do in our organizations to help move people beyond this second job mindset, to help move people to greater safety. Uh, so if you want to jot these down, Grab something, write these down. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one, but I want to just bring them out, get them, get them in your minds, and then you go away and think about, okay, how can we implement this, or what do I personally need to do, you know, as as a leader. Number one, we got to create order. You got to create order. Now, by order, I mean this: there have to be boundaries. There need there there we we need values. We need expectations. We need clarity. But that order has to be in place. And what I find is that while it appears like our organizations are in order because we're making money, they're in order because we have our processes and we have our procedures, we have our systems down. While that's true, that's not the kind of order I'm talking about. I'm talking about more the order that exists in the humanization part, like the boundaries and the values and what is the win and what are people here for? And what are we driving towards? How do we fundamentally see work? And how are we going to lead people? All of that. Because without that, there is chaos going on. And no one functions as the best version of themselves in chaos. And so when we start creating order by understanding who we are and who we want to be as an organization, we create order by knowing who we are and who we want to be as a leader. Now we start bringing order. And I'm telling you this. People thrive and love order. They don't. Nobody's going to say it, but we thrive in order. And to not have this kind of order that I'm talking about in our organizations, to me, is the equivalent of going all over your city, wherever you live, and taking out all the traffic signals and all the stop signs. What on earth would happen to traffic? I think the first day... It would be fun. I think after that, you've got complete 100% chaos. And people now are scared to go out and drive because they know it's not safe. Why? Because there is no order. And I think we have to move to this place where we create order and it takes a while. And it's ongoing. You don't just create it once and it's done. It's not a one and done thing. You create order and then you revisit and you revisit and you revisit and you shift it all the time, and it continues to grow. But we have to create order. Number two, we have to coach to better. Coach to better. Now, I, I, I say coach to better, 
instead of just coach, because sometimes I think we're really unclear of what we're coaching somebody to do or who we're coaching somebody to be. So we have to coach to better. Our organization, you make this very clear in your organizations, our organization is about making people better. Do you see it? And and when an organization declares our organization is about making people better. Now watch. Not just clients or customers, but the people that work in our organization. We are about making people better. And when somebody knows that from the very beginning of the process of working wherever they're going to work with you, when they know that, then they're not shocked or surprised when somebody brings coaching. We are about better. And better is that keyword. Everybody likes better. Everybody likes better. Even your cranky, whiny, negative person likes better. That's exactly why they're cranky, whining, and negative. Because things aren't better like they think they should be better. Everybody likes better. Everybody responds to better. Everybody wants better. So if I say to you, for example, you know, hey, uh, on a scale of one to 10, you know, where's your marriage right now? You go, well, it's pretty good. It's about an eight, 8.5. Not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good. I say, well, where do you want it to be in five years? You go, well, we like to whittle that down about a five. Like literally nobody's saying that. Like nobody is wanting things to get worse. Nobody's, nobody, set, nobody comes to work to do a bad job. Nobody hires on to a job to be a bad person or do a bad job. Everybody wakes up thinking that they're doing a great job. What we have to do is coach to better. You're doing a great job. What we want now is better and better and better. And we're coaching people to better. There's a phrase I use a lot, especially when I'm talking with teams about teams and what makes teams effective called social benevolence. Now, a lot of people aren't familiar with the term benevolent, the word benevolent. Um, it's kind of an older word. I don't know that we use it much, especially in for-profit circles, but in not-for-profit circles, you hear it a lot. So benevolence fund, benevolence giving. Benevolent, benevolence is basically helping other people um, out of your abundance. So you, it's, it's kind-hearted. You're doing things because it's the right thing to do, you know, those kinds of things. So social benevolence, in short, is this, helping others succeed. Helping others succeed. And I, here's what I believe. I believe every organization should make the shift to a socially benevolent organization. Embrace social benevolence. And we expect people, and we train people, and we coach people to help other people be better. So we coach to better. Number three, we build connection. We build connection. Now, I know this is probably not a shock for anybody that's ever been in any of my sessions or anybody I've ever worked with. I, I talk more about connection than probably any other single concept. Build connection. I'm not talking about relationship. I'm talking about connection. So relationship happens automatically. Connection happens intentionally. Connection happens uh, over a period of time where relationship can happen quick. You see, somebody hires onto the organization, automatic relationship with everybody in the, in the company. Does not mean they have connection. So we build connection. Now, now watch this. We build connection, you as a leader with them, 
but we also perpetuate and try to create connection them with them. Do you see it? So I want connection running through the organization, not not just the leader to you know the person you're leading, but them with each other. I want them to build connection with each other. So I want to, as a leader, I want to inspire and encourage friendships. I literally want people to be friends in the organization. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Gallup uses 12 questions to determine workplace culture. And they are yes or no questions. And one of those questions is, do you have a best friend at work? Yes or no? Majority of the people who take this say no. Now, the question has asked, people have asked Gallup this question. Okay, first of all, why is that even in there? Do people really need friends at work? And then the other question was, why best friend? Why not just do you have a friend at work? Well, studies have come back to show, and the science behind this and the reasoning behind this is absolutely amazing, man. So I would really challenge you beyond this conversation to really explore this and just do something as simple as Google best friend at work. What does Gallup say about best friend at work? You know, whatever you want to. And watch some of their, watch some of their videos and read some of their articles on this. But here's what Gallup says about best friends at work. Research on workers in various settings has shown that friends are more likely to invite and share candid information, suggestions, and opinions, and even to accept them without feeling threatened. You see this? That's what you do when you have a best friend. You offer and you accept. I'm not threatened. If you want to come to me and tell me something needs to change, I'm not threatened by that. Because there's that connection that's there and I consider us best friends. And this is one of the things Gallup said is they said, listen, we put best friend in there because most people that go to work think, yeah, everybody around work is my friend. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody that you feel like you can confide in, somebody that can help coach you to better and you're not going to get all freaked out about it. You see, they go on to say this, friends tolerate disagreements better than those who are not friends. It's true. Friends, uh, I'm sorry, the, the good feelings that friends share make them more likely to cheer each other on. In other words, encourage each other. Friends are more committed to the goals of the group and work harder regardless of the type of task. Group members who identify more closely with the team are more likely to monitor its performance against the goal. Friends at work matter. So what I want to do is I want to build connection. When I'm more connected with you, I don't have to hide. When I'm more connected with you, I now can offer advice. When I'm more connected with you, I don't have to lie, blame. I now feel more free to own because of that, because of that connection. Number four, make acceptance a norm. Make acceptance a norm. So acceptance is one of my foundations of team. I have not done a lot in the last three or four years um, 
uh, on on what I consider to be the foundations of team. But I got five foundations that have to be in place or teams are not fully functioning effective teams. And one of those foundations is acceptance. This this started for me years ago um, when I was in an organization and there were many times in the organization that I just simply did not feel accepted. Now, this is going to sound weird. I felt needed, but I didn't feel accepted. The difference is you can need someone because you need someone to fill a spot. But to accept someone is a totally different thing, man. I don't just need you. I accept you for who you are. So in this particular organization, I would say things that were like, different than anybody else would say. Uh, I would have ideas that were different than anybody else would have. And because of those things, you know, I I almost was considered a freak, but I didn't mind that because I tell people all the time, you need to hire a freak. You need to hire somebody who's going to come in and when they say something, you're going to go, what? Where in the world did that come from? You need people like that, but you have to accept their way of thinking. Now, If their way of thinking or their way of being is destructive to everybody in the organization, then that's a little bit different deal. I will still accept them as a person as they are, but I will not allow them to stay that way. And there is a fine line there and there's a tender balance. Acceptance of where other people are means letting go of judgments and expectations of how people should think and how they should act. So when I'm accepting some, I'm letting go of expectations. I'm letting go of judgments. It is so easy for us to jump to judgment. It's so easy for us to jump. We default. We see people based on our defaults so quickly that we don't even know we go there. When I'm accepting, I'm letting go of all of that. The truth is we will never fully know what's going on in somebody else's life. And we don't know the full truth of all their stories. Acceptance has nothing to do with surrender or backing down or condoning behavior, but it means accepting people without judgment or harboring negative feelings like fear and anger. This is what causes people to hide, is when they feel like if I am just my true self, nobody's going to like me, nobody's going to accept me, Nobody's going to listen to me, and I basically am not going to belong. So we have to make acceptance a norm. Now watch. Acceptance does not mean that I always agree, condone, or approve. I don't have to agree, condone, or approve, but I need to accept. And if we don't have this acceptance as a norm, then we're not going to have fully functioning, effective teams. So make acceptance a norm. Number five, always, always encourage. Always, always encourage. And yes, I said it twice on purpose. Always, always encourage. Now, this is not just simply throw comments around, uh, compliments around. It's not simply giving people awards or rewards. This is literally putting courage in People, in courage. When you say the word in courage, you're saying two words, in 
courage. So you're putting courage in people, which is the exact opposite of discourage, which means now I'm probably taking courage out of people. You see this? So I am going to encourage people. Now, I've said this for years. I personally believe that encouragement is your number one leadership tool. And uh, here's why I believe it. I believe because everybody needs it and because everybody can do it. Now, everybody doesn't need the same type of encouragement because what encourages you doesn't necessarily encourage me and vice versa. So so what encourages, I got to find out what encourages the people that I'm working with or the people that I'm leading. What really puts courage in them? What makes them feel courageous? And here's what's interesting. Anytime I'm with a team and I ask this question, how many of you want the people around you to feel courageous? Man, everybody's raising their hand. Oh, then, then what do you need to do? Put courage in them. You see it? The people you lead, you want them to feel courageous? Of course you do. So what do you need to do? Put courage in them. Now, again, uh, you know, we hear a lot of talk. One of the number one reasons... People leave a job or anything else is a lack of appreciation. Appreciation and encouragement can be, but they're not always the same. So encouragement, not necessarily appreciation. Encouragement is not necessarily compliments or uh, rewards. Encourage is actually making it personal and showing the value of what somebody is and who somebody is to the organization. Make it personal, show the value. Make it personal and show the value. So I'm going to say things to put courage in them that is very unique to them based on their qualities and based on what value they bring to the organization. Not something I could say to anybody like, thank you, you did a great job. I literally could say that to anybody. But I'm going to point out those qualities and characteristics that they have that lends, that that, that they have that makes them valuable to the team. That is, is putting courage in someone. Always, always encourage. Number six, and this may be my favorite one. I don't know. I'm starting to do a restudy now on this, on this particular subject. Number six, inspire fun. Inspire fun. The real workplace F word. Inspire fun. I just do not believe that we inspire and create enough fun in the workplace. Um, We associate fun sometimes with parties and whistles and hats and that's, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about loosening up a little bit and creating an environment of enjoyment. Can people just be themselves? Can they just have fun at work? Can I really just pause for a little bit and just laugh? Can I pause for a little bit and just loosen up a little bit and just create some loose, fun environment so that people can enjoy what it is they're doing? Inspiring fun. Inspiring fun. So let me take these six things And let me see if, I don't want to oversimplify it at all, but let me see if I can sum up these six things in this one three-word phrase. Humanize the workplace. When we begin to humanize the workplace, when we begin to see people's humanity and we begin to speak to people's humanity, we begin to be aware of people's humanity, 
then I think these six things start to come almost sometimes as kind of a natural byproduct. But these are six things I think we got to incorporate in our leadership. I think we need to incorporate in our organizations. And, and, they're, they're, and there's a whole lot more, obviously, that goes along with this. But because, you know, we're trying to do a 45-minute conversation here, I hope I've given you enough to think about, enough to kind of just go away and process. But ask yourself in your leadership, what do I need to do of these six things? What do I probably need to do to keep people from working this second job that people work so much behind the scenes that none of us really know about. 